Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Got a fun episode for you guys today. We're going to talk about the very humble screw. That's right. Which it sounds like, okay, we're going to talk about screws, but it's actually when we interviewed the guy, we interviewed I, the guy. So, yeah, I started looking at this when I read a weird article about the history of the screw. I was like, this, how much can there really be, right? This can't be that interesting. It is. And actually I went quite down this rabbit hole and I found the foremost authority, the expert on the history of the screw. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, scouting for the rally. Jake's been working on the C10. I, I'm an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> but before we get into that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service made just for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest for the car guy, and they ship it right there to your doorstep. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic at $19.95, while the Petrobox Premium gets you double the gear for $39.95 a month. Either way, be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So you and I and our lady friends went on, did the rally. You, yes. did, you did about one-third of it. So how many miles did you and I put on? Someone was asking My odometer like, doesn't work, but... <laughs> I know when I went and drove, I took the wagon from my house right. and I drove two thirds. Well, put it this way. If you're going to drive the entire rally from start to finish, yes. it's about 450 miles. Okay. So we over did the course of two days, not all of that. No, we did not do all of that. We skipped most of the first day because I, I know so that we stuff did really, over really well. 200 probably. Uh, something. Yeah. I don't really I was, know. Someone was asking me, I was like, I didn't look at my odometer before. my odometer doesn't work i don't know if i need to hook up something else because there's another connection back there that's not connected to anything <laughs> so i don't know if i need to run power excuse me i don't know if i need to run power to that or something i don't really know it doesn't work so i have no idea but i know that i drove 600 miles from my house and back when i did it round trip wow but i didn't even do the whole rally so yeah. it's and i probably have my guess is scouting out for the rally I have about a, at least a, a thousand miles driven just scouting wow. and driving around, making sure everything is awesome for everybody. Um, I had a lot of fun. I, I actually had the most fun I had was driving your car. Yeah, I, we swapped cars yeah, about halfway through. That was a lot of fun. It, and uh, So I also really enjoyed that because, first of all, I got my carbs dialed in, and I'm super happy with how it's driving. It, dri it drove great. A little bit of, there's a couple little things. There's a yeah. little flat spot yeah, in it, it but it's it. so much better than before, Chris, that I'm like dialed in. It's I good. only drove it when you first got the car. Yep. And then now. Right. And it, it felt great. It felt, it was, by the time, it took me a while to get used to your dog leg transmission. It, it and really we, did. we I have was, our pedals set up so much differently. I, well, your brake pedal is terrible. It's no, like, it's, it's not. got about four inches of slop where it, it does, does have nothing. Slop. I need to bring it down. And then one, about one inch of brake pedal travel. Yeah, where, but you can actually heel toe, whereas yours, it's no, like you can't. two feet higher than the gas pedal. If you're driving my car, spiritedly and you push the brake pedal down you should have four inches of travel to get into the brakes i don't yes you should have a decent amount of travel so you can modulate the brakes that's what the problem is with your brakes okay. is that you have about one inch of travel on your brakes you've got to figure it out when i when i'm it has uh, to be some adjustment with the, the lever action. yeah the lever and there's the linkage itself has a has right. a pin on it that you can bring it out there's just a lot of a lot of play there but mine when you're when you're driving my car hard which i'm sure you probably weren't 
driving my car no. as hard as I do. When you're driving hard, you get on the brakes pretty hard. All there was going through is the dollar signs that you spent on the front end, and that's the part I would crash first into something is the front end. So I was like, hmm, better. You're pushing the brake pedal down nice and hard into a corner. It's directly even with the gas pedal. So you just rotate your foot over. Boom. It's right there. But you have to be really... Dry. You well, have to be driving anything, pretty hard. Not only that, you have to be used to it. That's correct. So it's funny yeah, because so I got back in mine and I was used to it. I was re I really like driving yours. It took me a while to get used to the dog leg and your transmission's a little weird. I just, I didn't quite understand it. But once <laughs> I got used to it, I drove your car as hard as it possibly could drive. And that's what's great about that car. It was car. fun because my car you have to be quite careful with because you can really get in trouble. Yeah. With, it's fast enough Going to get you in trouble. Going on these technical roads out in the country, I was actually able to thrash my car. I you mean, can. I was, it's the adage, a slow, driving a slow car fast is much more fun than driving a fast car slow. It is. It, 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 that is always true. And I was, by the time we got to the end, before we swapped, I was beating your car within an inch of its life. <laughs> I really was. I was really going for it. And what I was, was your wife saying during that? Nothing. Nothing. Really? She, okay. just, she just sat there. Um, it was great. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And just... It made me want the other car I want. I'd like to have a 914 yeah. or a 912 or something. Something just maybe not a 912. Maybe like a you 914. You don't like 912s. No, I'd, I'd rather have a 914 than a 912. That way you have something different. But I'd like just a slow Porsche to drive around. I don't want a 944 because it's too modern. It seems like it it's would be fast, different. but it isn't. Yeah. The expectation of a 914 is that it's already slow and you can kind of just flog the hell out of it and have a good time. Um, it might be too It's what they call a momentum car. You yes. gotta keep up the momentum. Yeah, it might be corners. too slow. It's it's quite a bit slower than even than your yeah. 911, oh, yeah. but I really really enjoyed that. We got to see What did you think of the roads? They were amazing. Yeah. There's you know, of course it's uh in Wisconsin all county road A, highway B, it's all these ABCs, yeah. right? The alphabet. And I told Nikki, my wife, in the passenger seat cuz we were like, let's take notes, and I just go Write down County Road A is for awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first one we went on. Yes, yeah. it was. And it only gets it only gets better from there. Yeah. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to doing the rally. Um, when we were out there, I, you know, the whole time we were driving, I had like this little noise in my car. <laughs> and it would go away when I would turn right. I'm like, oh, I'm losing an axle or a wheel bearing or yeah. something. It's like, and it would go away when you would turn. So I thought it was basically loading something up and it was going away, which is exactly what was happening. True. And then we left on day two after we got up from our Airbnb or whatever and started to drive away. And it's like, clack, clack. I'm like, oh my God, it's really loud. Yeah. It's really, really loud. You and stopped and you're like, I, like you thought we might not even. I'm like, my axle is, it, I, it's really, really sounded like an axle. Yeah. It was clank, 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 like the clanking sound. <laughs> well, maybe that isn't an axle. Maybe that's not the sound it makes. Anyway, I thought it was an axle. It's the only other rotational thing because it's not a wheel bearing because the wheel bearing has got too many bearings in it to go it clank, would, yeah. clank, clank. That would so howl, thought, basically. Yeah, it would make this sound or something like that. So I thought it was an axle. I get out. I'm like kind of looking under there. I grab the wheel and wiggle it around. It doesn't really move. We pull over. You're like, I'm looking under the car. You're moving the wheel back and forth. And then all of a sudden... You're, I was you're, like, you're like, wait a second. I go to touch, like, just, I was like, maybe, I don't know why. I didn't think it would be, but I went to check your lug nuts and they were just loose. Yeah, they were like, all loose. Like I could loose. just hand turn them off. Yeah, they were all, I mean, they weren't, the wheel was not about to fall off or anything, but it was very loose. Yeah. It was very, well, very loose. Well, it was loose enough to get play in for you to hear it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm trying to figure out in my head, I'm like, why was this loose? I never took this wheel off. <laughs> I never took this wheel off from the time I drove home from Luft. The wheel was never off the car. So why is this loose? I think maybe, you know, it's my due diligence. I should have checked it. Usually I check right. that stuff. 
Um, I must have just been in a hurry. I checked the tire pressures and everything, and then I must have gotten distracted and never came back to do the do the wheels. So it's my fault. But I you still don't think, think the body shop took off the rear wheel? No, I just can't figure out why that wheel would be fine for like eight thousand miles, and then all of a sudden all the lug nuts are loose. Not right. one. All, All of them. them. Yeah. That or someone in my neighborhood hates me. <laughs> We're going to get this guy to loosen up his I lug nuts. I have a nuts. story, a family friend that actually happened to them. Someone loosened up their lug nuts? It was something to do way back in the day with like, a, he was a union guy and other guys weren't union guys and it was a big thing crossing the line. Oh, no. And from a job site, someone loosened all his wheels. And he went over the train tracks and just... Thum, thum, Here's thum. the question. I have done this multiple times. I've had maybe three or four times in my life not tighten the wheel up all the way after putting it on. Right. And I can feel it. It's not something you don't notice. Like, how dumb do you need to be to drive to the point where your wheel falls off? Because it's loud. It makes noise. It feels weird. You can feel it in the car. You can feel it in your butt, in your feet, in your hands, on the steering wheel. I have to imagine it depends how old and crappy the truck is that you did it on. Yeah, well, (laughs) the thing's making a lot of noise already. It might already be, be that, so... So we tighten that up. That's good to go. And I do have to say, one of the perks of having uh, one of your best friends as a photographer and his wife as a professional <laughs> photographer is we have. I have some great photos. You of my do car have some now. great pictures That's of the car. Just awesome. did a just did a really great job. We'll have to we'll post some of those up. Yeah. Um, what did you think of my car with the the motor and the carbs and everything? So did you get to get into it much? I did. But here's what's interesting: when we swapped initially, I was like, I felt really happy because I wasn't that blown away initially. I yeah. was like, it's not. That much better than mine. That's awesome. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, because we have the same muffler. We have the same headers. They sound we both similar. Have carbs. They sound yeah. very similar. And so just when I'm not in the revs, it's like, yeah, it's, there's more torque, but I'm not like blown away until the road opened up. And I noticed you were thrashing mine. So I was like, all right, I'm going to rev yours out. And then I hit 4,000 RPM <laughs> and things changed drastically. <laughs> drastically, Chris. There's so much power. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's our, intoxicating. Our cars sound exactly the same in the exhaust, but the induction noise is completely different. You're right. I think is, I mean, I think that's the displacement just pulling in. Yeah. In more air. More, so yeah. you've been working on the C10. I forever have. is this thing ever I gonna move is it gonna move I'm again so frustrated with this thing yes because i've been waiting for the stupid brake component that you're I've so frustrated out. with this thing that you didn't want to hang out you were so frustrated i'm frustrated with this truck i'm not hanging yeah, I was out just grumpy you didn't yeah. want to see me anyways yeah what was what's going on what's the so, problem all right i have the new disc brakes on it right and i have uh, new calipers and the spindles are lowered and a new master cylinder that's powered and it's dual master cylinder, but then it needs a brake proportioning valve that also came with it because you have to run discs front, drums rear. You need to separate out the pressure. The problem is I don't know if the fitting on the proportioning valve was stripped from the factory or if I cross-threaded it, but I couldn't. <laughs> Probably not no, stripped from the factory. No, Chris. <laughs> No, it could have been. No, it, it wasn't. It definitely could have been. No, it wasn't. But it just kept leaking, and I was trying to figure it out, and finally I disassembled the proportioning valve, and I was like, oh, yeah, those threads are just just, just torqued. torqued. And you went to O'Reilly and bought a new proportioning valve, because they must have that stuff there. But the problem is this is all like proprietary classic performance parts setup. It's their master cylinder. It's their disc brakes. It's their proportioning valve. Yep. That being said... A lot of other trucks run disc front drum rear, so right. I probably could have done that, but right. I was like, I already spent all the money on this. I'm just going to order the one little part for $15 to make it work. Okay. I ordered that over a week ago. It's still not here. still not here, so yeah. I don't know. The other thing is- You I'm, got a new carburetor, right? Because the carburetor was leaking. 
It was that, leaking out of the throttle shaft. Yes. Okay. So the Rochester Monojet Carburetor Model B. It's it's basically self-explanatory. Is there it's a logo for the simple, Monojet? There's got to yeah, be like a. Yeah, is there, there one? Is. I think so. Okay. I remember I'll have to see it. that. Um, it's a very simple carburetor. What's interesting about that is the actual throttle. Are we talking body, lawnmower simple? I mean, it looked really simple when you were saying. There's a couple other like circuits. Okay. That are counterintuitive. Like I had to actually study this thing to figure it out. Um, but the throttle body disconnects from the carburetor body. So it's not like a carburetor normally where it's all one body. So if, you can unscrew okay. and it looks like a fuel injected. Co- Which like side throttle is the body. throttle on? The bottom. So it's on the intake manifold side. Yes. So it's a draw through. It's pulling through rather than the throttle body being on the other side. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. Yes. The okay. atomizer and everything is. is on top of the throttle body. Okay. And that's, that's where that's, the butterfly that's, is. That's normal. Exactly. That's standard. So no, I was able to just send out the throttle body, get that remanufactured. What they did is they drilled it out and put new bushings in. So now it doesn't leak out the throttle uh, butterfly valve shaft, which is great because that was a big fuel hazard. Yeah. So I get and that together. Link. And a vacuum link. And it's, it idles great. Do you know that this thing, this factory idle setting is RPM? 500. Yeah, I bet it's just, just smooth. B- 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 I bet it's smooth b- b- as hell, too. Yeah. I bet it's super six, smooth. It's yeah. Great. With like four to one compression or exactly. whatever. It is. It's just great. <laughs> but it's still like off throttle or off idle, rather. It would just fall on its face. I'm like, I hate that this thing isn't running right. It's all new ignition. I was like, I'm reading about it. The carburetor, I've been through it. Maybe the valve are just so out of adjustment, the rockers, that I need to adjust those. I doubt you. That could be it. I highly doubt that. So I went through and I adjusted all the valves. How off were they? Were they off? Were they, they were off. Okay. They were all off. Could you hear it clattering? It was a little clattery. Okay. It wasn't terrible, but now it's much better, but still no difference. It's like, it has to be carburetor. So I took the carburetor apart again, and it had been rebuilt by the previous owner relatively recently because all the gaskets are good. Everything's new looking. The problem is I didn't look at a diagram when I went through it. I assumed the way it was put together was correct. Oh, it was not. So who the previous owner put the carburetor together wrong? Yeah. There's a spring under the power valve under the power valve. What's Chris. the power valve? Power valve is this thing where it basically puts more fuel in it's when accelerator it's under pump. high load, okay. not accelerator under oh, high load, a high vacuum or, or correct. low vacuum, low vacuum. Right. Yeah. So this was basically always open instead of off and then opens under high load. Mm. So it was getting way too much fuel when it shouldn't and not enough when it should. I'm surprised it ran. I am too. But idle, it's just going through the idle circuit. Yeah, but you drove it like that. True. You drove it from Hudson. It didn't run great. Okay. (laughs) But I thought that was mostly ignition and everything else. You're like, I'll take care of that one. Yeah. So I got it. It's much better, but there's still this stumble. And so I'm reading about it. I'm reading about it. And what do you say about my Zenith carburetors? You give me shit because they're notorious for just sucking, being a bad design. And everyone says, just replace them, right? And so I'm looking about this Rochester carburetor. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, you know what they say about the ABCs of Rochester? Always buy a Carter because that's the replacement (laughs) brand. So I'm like, no, I've already spent some money on this carburetor. I want to get it running right. So I bought a new gasket kit for it to see if that'll fix it. Oh, no. I can probably drive it as is. I still want to see the thing with side drafts. I think that's going to be the sweetest thing ever. It looks so good. But the moral of today's updates is never trust someone else's work. That's absolutely true. You can even even with new parts. I made fun of you for that thing being stripped out from the factory or whatever. But there never assume that just because a part is new that it's good. Right. Always keep it in your mind if you're having trouble. 
It could be, it's probably you, but it, <laughs> but it could be the part. You can always give yourself an out for your shoddy work by assuming that the part is bad. Obviously it was, Chris. <laughs> it's Obviously happened to me many times where the part was. has been bad. Yeah. I've gotten a bad part out of the box. Like uh, like a distri- I've gotten bad distributors before. I got a bad distributor really? for my boat. And I just struggled and struggled and struggled with this uh, distributor that I got for my boat. It's supposed to be like a marine sealed distributor. Or whatever. Sure. It was just bad. Wow. It was broken. So I, I finally I said, I'm going to put the old distributor. I have a blazer. It's not sealed, so it's not safe to have in a in a sealed boat compartment where there's fumes. But just to try it. Just to try it, fired right up, was mint. Wow. So it was a brand new, like, Mallory distributor that was like just- good brand. Just bad. Things happen. They wow. do happen. So before we get into our actual history story here, our feature segment of the week, let's talk about our sponsor, Oberk car care. Oberk is a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, hologram, and oxidation on your vehicle's paint. And right now, Oberk is offering 20% off any order online with the code OVERCREST. Discount code is good not only on OBERKCARCARE.com, but also on CarSuppliesWarehouse.com and DetailedImage.com. I have tried it. It's good product. It's kind of foolproof, the system they have. It's yeah, a two-step it's system. It's really good. Check you them out. If you don't want to have a million things around your garage, like steps one through 12 on how to polish your car, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's really nice for people like me that don't really enjoy exactly. it. Exactly. I don't even like it. I parked my car, dis- it was disgusting when I got home. It's still kind of disgusting. I haven't touched mine. <laughs> but it's it's less disgusting than it was before. Well, I drove further and more than an you did. An hour so. further. Uh, about, it was about an hour and a half. You should have stuck it out. It was it was some of the best driving. I'm glad I got home when I did, though. Yeah. yeah. That would have made did a you long go up the, day. Did you go up the Iowa side? Yeah. It was beautiful. I, I was know. so surprised. Did you go over the crazy bridge? Yeah. Where it's like they don't know how to make a curve in Iowa, so it's just straight <laughs> at, Right? There's all like, kinds of crazy. Like, does the bridge end? It's literally just a straight corner Maybe on the next, next year on the rally, we'll have to do a little bit on the Iowa side. I didn't realize how great. close we were there. I, the Iowa stuff was great. It's called the Driftless Zone. I saw that. Did you look up what that is? No. So the Driftless. It's the river, right? Driftless. A drift is basically where a glacier comes through and leaves a bunch of stuff. It's called oh. the Drift. Okay. This is driftless. The the glacier did not basically carve this area up, which is what, when a glacier comes through, it just basically bulldozes and flattens the entire yeah, terrain, yeah. right? It just goes, <laughs> just crushes it. <laughs> yeah. This didn't get affected by the glacier. That's why it's all so good. That's why it's all these valleys and, and like ups and downs and lefts the, and rights and bluffs the here. The big takeaway, and people will see this if they're able to come on the rally is the elevation change is mind-boggling for this area. What do we think? It's got to be between... Now, obviously, we're not at sea level, but it's it's got to be between zero and 1,000 feet, like, over and over. Like, we're, we're it's like just a yo-yo. up, down, up, down, up, down, back. It, like, switchbacks it in is. some places. Yeah. It's, what? It's, switchbacks in Wisconsin. It is... Uh, I can say right now that I feel... I feel really bad that I had to turn people away. Yeah, I, and I it, feel, it's just, it's coming down to the fact that it's gotten much more popular this year, I, and we want to... It, yeah, but it's, there's cars that I, and people that I would like to have there that I just, I I feel heartbroken yeah. that I can't have everyone there, and, I, and I'm planning something for the spring, which I can't talk about yet, that should allow everyone who wants to come, to come, and it's going to be this big thing that I'm going to do, and so have no fear... We'll get to hang out. We'll get to take the car together, 
It's just not going to be on this one. But we'll do something, I promise. Yes. All right, Chris, I want you to take a look at something. Okay, this is a uh, this is a screw. We That's are, right. It's just a simple screw. It's the humble I have Phillips head screw. I have a million of these at my house. Yes, it's a design so ubiquitous, it's seen everywhere. But did you ever stop to wonder what the origins of the screw are? Yes, and only because I think about this stuff all the time. <laughs> I look at very simple things and I go, where did this come from? Why? What was the first iteration of this? Why does this exist? Right. What was... What was the human being thinking when they went, okay, well, this we need something to make this easier, make this better. And what was the necessity that needed the invention to exist in the first place? Now, when you think of a screw, you think, well, this is replacing like, uh, I think of um, all these joints with the big dowel pin that's driven through to hold right. up the A-frame or whatever. You have, or a slot where something slides into the slot and then the dowel pin goes through it You're all. You're talking like woodworking yes. joints. Yeah, woodworking joints. And then I, somebody probably just went, you know what? I'm really tired of doing this. <laughs> this sucks. Or someone said, wow, labor is really expensive right now. We need to figure out a way to cut the labor down on this project. How can we do that? Let's try and, how can we make this go together easier? And uh, who are we talking to? We got an expert that's coming on to explain. Right. So not only did I stumble upon a history of the screw that's way more interesting than I ever would have imagined, I found the absolute foremost expert on the topic, Vitold Rybczynski. He's a uh, professor of urban design. I thought I University. was the expert on the nope. screw, but it's got to be this you guy. You are not. Yeah. Uh, Vitold is a professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania and an award-winning author of One Good Turn, A Natural History of the Screwdriver and the Screw. So well, without I further ado, here is our interview with Vitold. Hello. Vitold, this is Jake Solberg. Hi, Jake. Vitold Rybczynski is a professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania and an award-winning author. And Mr. Rybczynski, I learned that all this started when the New York Times asked you to write an essay identifying the best tool of the millennium. And you seemed like just the man to do it. You quote, once built a house using only hand tools. So before we go any further, I have to ask you about that. Well, it was, it was, it was a long time ago, and one was younger and kind of stupider, I suppose. <laughs> uh, the house was, the thing was, we didn't have electricity uh, where we were building. And we knew that we would have bring in electricity at some point. But we were uh, about 600 feet from the road. And I just got it into my mind that it would be fun to do this by hand and Eventually, we would bring in the electricity, but but for the moment, we didn't need it. And so it was all done with, it was a wooden house, you know, a frame house. So it was done with with saws and hammer and nails. And, and uh, it was only when I expanded the house, by then I did have electricity. And of course, it was all much easier. <laughs> but it was it was sort of a, you know, you're, getting, you're kind of, you're sort of daring yourself to try something and you convince yourself that it will be fine and it'll it'll work out. And mostly it did. What were some of the challenges that you ran into as you were building this house with these uh, with these hand tools? Um, not so much, really. I mean, the, the cutting wood was the only uh, sort of challenging thing because, I mean, cutting two-by-fours is not a problem, but cutting longer pieces of wood, especially... The the house was clad in cedar, 
side vertical siding. So some there were these long cuts, and that was that's uh, a, a challenge. <laughs> but basically, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it was. It was doable. It wasn't. Uh, but most mostly, a wood frame house is really put together with uh, with nails, and of course, hammering nails is is the way you build anyway. And so that part of it was really very very easy. Yeah, well, clearly it made sense then that the Times tapped you to write this essay on the best tool of the millennium. And when I talked to you before, you you were talking a little bit about some of the challenges when you started to look into this. Well, my my first response to the editor who called me was that uh, I'd always been interested in eyeglasses. And eyeglasses, most people don't realize, were invented in the Middle Ages. That's when they invented lenses and telescopes and microscopes. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll just write about eyeglasses, be a chance to research it a bit. And uh, and but when I mentioned this to the editor, he said, no, no, he, he they really wanted a hand tool, uh, like a hammer or a saw. I mean, that, that sort of tool. He was quite insistent about that. So, so what, hold on. So let, me, kinda, let me ask you before you get into that. What do you define a tool as? Because you could say like a screwdriver is different than eyeglasses because hmm. – I, I would never think of eyeglasses as a tool. I think of a tool. It certainly is. It certainly is, but in, in the common sense of the term, I don't think of my glasses as a tool, but I do think of a screwdriver or a hammer as a tool. Yes, and I think that was what the that was in the editor's mind too. In other words, he was using the word tool in the most popular way. I think in a kind of historical or technological way, uh, all these things are tools. I mean, a computer is a tool. Anything that extends the the reach of somebody is a tool. But what he meant was a, literally a hand tool, something that you uh, used with your hands and that uh, you were used to to do something with. So he was he was he wanted he was using the word in a very narrow narrow sense and that's that was what he wanted me to to look he didn't he didn't mention any particular tool i think uh, he left that up to me but he he made it clear that that's the way he was thinking of it the way you are thinking of it yes so from there your piece of the times turned into a full-fledged book one good turn a natural history of the screwdriver and the screw this of course as i mentioned makes you in my mind at least the foremost expert on the design of the humble screw that we all know today. So tell us, where does the invention of the screw itself begin? It's sometime in the Middle Ages, the late later Middle Ages. Uh, the very first, the screws had to be made by hand. Uh, if you can imagine <laughs> taking a nail and making a screw, it's a it's a tough project. So. It takes a long time. It makes screws very expensive. So screws were were used very very rarely and for only for special things. One of the first threaded, not a screw, really a bolt that I found was in medieval armor, because when most armor was was uh, strapped to the person, there were leather straps underneath, but. There were uh, certain things that they couldn't figure, they couldn't make a strap work, and they used bolts with nuts. And 
you know, when the, when they were putting the armor on the soldier, they they would fasten them these a few pieces. There were two or three, and I I did I remember I went to the Metropolitan Museum and and found suits of armor, and indeed there were these beautiful handmade bolts. Uh, I can that just were used. imagine being the knight or the soldier who is literally <laughs> bolted into your armor. Imagine right. getting claustrophobic and trying to get out of that thing. <laughs> but uh, that those were bolts. Those were, were not wood screws. Wood screws, the, the, one of the earliest uses I found was, was in... Uh, Making firearms, muskets, or the and the, the ancestor of muskets of war to be the just the foundation <laughs> for this, right? And of course, you know the the these they were called arquebuses. They were uh, they were they were the very first type of uh, firing weapon, and of course they had a wooden stock, and they had to attach the firing mechanism to it, and that's. That was one of the very first uses of screws that I found. And they must have gotten loose, you know, as they fired the gun, because I, the very first screwdriver I found was actually more like a Swiss knife, because it was three or four tools that the gunners would carry, you know, in their pocket for emergencies. And one of them was a screwdriver to tighten things up. Is this Chinese uh, you know, era? Like, are we kind of... In China, doing no, this? No, no, these are this? European. Okay, these European. Are, okay, okay. Uh, these are probably German or Dutch or or, or maybe British. So it's that kind of era. So and, they should have called it the uh, Dutch Army knife instead of the Swiss <laughs> Army knife. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're 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 beautiful little tools that you know they they sort of use them for reaming out the. The, the musket, or cleaning out the gunpowder, or, or something like that. But, but, but one of the one end of it was this flat. It was a flathead screw screwdriver, and of course, very quickly. Then, uh, for the longest time, screw, screws were made by hand, uh, but they got used more and more. And what really, and the screwdriver really happens at the same time. You you sort of can imagine. You know, people using the way we do a dime to tighten a screw initially, just using anything flat. But eventually, they they added proper wooden handles. Uh, well, I've they bent were called- all kinds of stuff. I've bent. Uh, <laughs> I have on my keychain right now dog tags that I've used, and the, the ends are all twisted right. up from using <laughs> trying to figure out a way to twist a screw tight. But the the great moment really is when people figure out how to mass produce screws. Which, if you think about it, think of that machine. It's it. You have to make a spiral groove that gets, you know, not straight, straight up and down like a bolt, but on a, uh, a helical one that gets smaller, you know, and then ends up in a point. Uh, so that would that was really when screwdrivers came into their own because once you got cheap screws, then people could use them for all sorts of things. And did that they were they became popular very quickly, and of course you then get at the same time a whole range of screwdrivers, and it's interesting because there almost every craft had it. You know there are gunners screwdrivers and cabinet maker screwdrivers and carpenter screwdrivers. All these for these specialized screws, some very jeweler screwdrivers for very tiny screws, which were used in 
in watches and things like that. So uh, there were whole catalogs of, of sort of, this is like by the 18th century. Well, it's the messiest drawer in my toolbox for sure is the screwdriver drawer. <laughs> it's a million screwdrivers. I mean, I'm sure it. you, and I bet you have like half a dozen screwdrivers if you count them up, you know. Uh, you know those little ones and the tiny ones, and the, right. as well as the different the Phillips and the flathead and so on. Yeah, a little off topic, Vito. But do you you're talking about you know when they finally mass produce these screws? Do you in your research recall were they basically cast in a mold or did they actually hand, like machine these on a lathe? How did they uh, actually? No, they turned them on a lathe, they and did. that. Wow. that and the, the, I, I devote a lot of space to that because I, when I was working on this, I came across the fact that the lathe is really the key to the whole industrial revolution. I mean, if, before you can make, if you can't make a lathe, you can't make any industrial machinery of any sort because you have you have to have the ability to create very uh, accurate and precise screws. So that you can make machine tools, first of all. So the the, the wood screw is like like the poor cousin of the whole story. But the <laughs> the real star is the machine screw, which you can then use to make precise instruments like microscopes and telescopes and all of the the stuff that comes with the industrial revolution and and all those machine tools that are then used to make other tools and. Uh, so the, so the wood screw is kind of the easiest one because they don't have to be terribly precise. That's why they could make them by hand. But uh, no, they don't cast them. They they turn them on a on a, basically how? on a kind of lathe. I can't imagine how expensive a single screw would be then. Because I used to have a big you know thirty six inch uh, metal lathe that I played around with for a bit, and I can't imagine having the skill and the patience to one by one turn a screw on this thing well that it was a great challenge and i can't remember now i think it was an american who invented the, the machine to mass produce screws inexpensively but once when he did it became a huge success uh, because it was such a complicated thing to figure out yeah uh, uh, i mean the, the people had screws and they were they were made by hand and they were you know they would cast them and then they would file them down and make points on them and so on. But figuring out an automated machine that could do that was, was really the challenge. And I, I seem to remember seeing pictures. They were extremely complicated-looking machines. Um, but then once they get going, then it it really takes off. And people then, – then you find, you know, the screws are used in, in boats and horse carriages and – uh, all the all the areas where they used to use these very complicated wooden joints, uh, they could re- they could replace with cheaper joints using screws and How then glue the labor and market. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if the cabinet maker or these really skilled tradesmen doing all the wood crafting, if they liked it, or if all of a sudden they're out of jobs. They certainly didn't like it because it was it was never the, a screw joint is never as as good as a real wooden. Uh, mortise and tenon or some kind of complex joint. So uh, in terms of expensive furniture, it didn't change. But in in terms of cheaper furniture, it made it possible to make uh, mass-produced furniture 
and and then you get sort of the split that happens so much so often in the industrial revolution between the the beautiful old things which become luxury goods like handmade boats or handmade shoes or anything like that and then the mass produce which tends to have a very short life uh but is much cheaper and that that ordinary people can afford sort of for the first time you know they can have a pair of shoes that doesn't last I mean, a good pair of shoes will last several lifetimes. I mean, people would leave clothes to their children, wow. very wealthy people. But we, we wouldn't think of that. we just throw our sneakers away. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, now we're the disposable society completely. Right. When right. I think of this screw and I think of all the work that went into make it and developing the machines to make it and how it revolutionized society and it just changed how we, you know, with the, with the breadth of goods that are available, like you're talking about with cheap goods and expensive goods and all these different things, I kind of look at society today and I go, well, what's the screw of today? Like, what is there? <laughs> is there ever going to be, you know, we had the Industrial Revolution, which is a very unique time in, in American history, right? It's a very special time I'm in world history. I'm sorry. And now you have kind of like the Internet and medical revolution, but it doesn't really feel monumental like the Industrial Revolution and something like the screw and, you know, like the automobile and everything else that happened at that time. It just doesn't feel like we're ever going to have a time like that again. I think I would say the internet has done that. The internet is changing everything. I mean, the, all those people out in the street pulling down monuments or burning things, that wouldn't happen without the internet because they need the internet to communicate with each other. And, and, and news gets around through the internet. So it, it's, I think it's quite possible to argue that, that the internet is going to have as big an effect as say the printing press uh, had in the Middle Ages. Yeah, for sure. Think about it. I mean, with the printing press, instead of monks copying books by hand, anybody could write a book and and it could be printed in hundreds and thousands of copies. And so you get a Martin Luther who can you know write a book and then people can read it. I mean, today suddenly you or I or anybody can be a publisher. And, and we have the same power that that in you know William Randolph Hearst had. I mean, you had to be a millionaire to own a newspaper, and and today everybody can have their own little newspaper or and a so podcast for it, for that matter. Or <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So it's kind of it. I think uh, you know you never know what the future holds, but the, the people who argue that that's this is a really momentous change that we're living through. I think I think. I would agree with it. I think that the, that it is. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't think the computer was that important. It's a glorified typewriter for many people. But I do think that the Internet is one of those epochal devices that it's not exactly... I mean, it's not about manufacturing in the way the Industrial Revolution was, but it, the effect on people's lives might be just as significant. Well, anyway, you change the way people interact and communicate with each other and disseminate information is going to be is going to be big. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. So, be told, I want to get a little bit back to the screw, and I want to fast forward actually a few centuries yeah. to 1907, and that's when Peter Limburner Robertson submitted his patent. What made Robertson's design so great or unique? I should say that he was trying to solve a problem that many people were so trying to solve, which is that the medieval screw had a slot in it. 
And that, that became the standard screw for hundreds of years. Uh, it's easy to make because you just, you just take a file or a, a saw and, and cut it into the top of the screw. So when they made screws by hand, they would just cut the slot in. And that, and it's also very convenient because anybody can make a screwdriver. A screwdriver is not a complicated tool. And, and as we said, you can use a dime. You can use anything to, to, in an emergency. And so that makes it very attractive. Uh, the problem with the with the slots is that when you're starting to automate tools, you know, to have power screwdrivers, uh, which was starting in in mass production at that time, uh, slotted screws are are a problem because the the screwdriver tends to to cam out of the, the slot, uh, and you have to be you have to put it in very carefully, and you have to you sort of have to hold it in. It's it's not. It's not an automatic sort of fit. Uh, and so many people were trying all sorts of shapes, uh, star shapes and cross shapes, and uh, to, to figure out a, a screwdriver and a screw that wouldn't cam out, that would be tighter. And Robertson came up with a very simple idea, which is a, which is a square with slanted sides uh, instead of a slot. And what that means, and it's 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 hard to explain unless you actually use one of these things. But if you if you put a, a screw at the end of a a Robertson screw at the end of a screwdriver, it just stays on; it doesn't fall out. So I mean, you can hold it up or down; it it stays in there. Uh, and so when you're first of all, you can put the screw onto the screwdriver and then fit it into the hole, and then when you're screwing, you don't actually have to make any effort. The screwdriver stays in that little square hole automatically. And it centers too, which is great because if you're just going to go, you know, put the tool on the device, you don't have to like twist your hand around and find the slot. Exactly. Oh, there it is. Yeah. And, and, it, it, and you can really tighten it up very hard because it doesn't slip out. If you, you know, when you, you, it happens to everybody when you're, screwing in a slotted screw if if you have if you overdo it you can screw up the slot and and really mess things up and then you can't right. get the screw out and it's a whole yeah, mess that strips the head i don't know how many times i've done that so with those with the robertson screw that really doesn't happen i know that because i lived in canada a long time uh and i still have boxes of robertson screws because they're like precious now they're hard to find and I still I I still use them occasionally because it's just a superior product. The only the only downside is that you need to have three special screwdrivers because they they come in three sizes. The you know for very small screws and the largest screws is sort of small, medium, and large in terms of the, the square hole. And you need to have the right screwdriver. Uh, and it, it, the screwdriver, the screwdriver has to be properly made so that two things fit together. But other than that, it really, in terms of using it, it's definitely a superior screw that sort of overcomes the problem of the slotted screw. 
I'd like to recount the story of Robertson and how he came up with this, supposedly. I don't know if in your research you found this to be true or not, but the story I read was that Robertson was actually a traveling salesman for a manufacturer of screws, and they were just the standard, you know, regular flat slot head screws. And here he is. You can just picture this traveling salesman going around to different industries and demonstrating his screws. And in one of the demos, he must have really been getting after it because he's sitting there twerking it. The screwdriver slips and he cuts his hand. And I can only imagine the plethora of, you know, swear words going out of his hand. (laughs) Everybody gasping. But one thing he did is he swore to design a better screw and driver. And so that's how this came about. It just sounds a little bit too neat. As I said, (laughs) um, you know, many people were, if you look up, if you look up uh, patent logs, I mean, many, many people were trying to figure out uh, a way around this problem. He was certainly not the only person. And it was, it was such an obvious problem because the slotted screw had been around a long time. And there are literally dozens of patents for different types of heads. The thing is, some of them get, many of them get very complicated. Uh, I mean, there were there were some with with sort of double slots, uh, literally two slots instead of one, and they were very complicated shapes. So uh, his genius, as as with any innovator, is not just the idea; it's also figuring out how to manufacture it, uh, how to get across the, you know any of the problems that. Uh, of producing the thing, uh, and so it w- so he had the idea, but he also was smart enough to figure out uh, a way to get it to, to to solve the manufacturing problem so that it wouldn't cost more than a slotted screw, for example. Um, the one problem that he had was that he was a very stubborn man, <laughs> uh, probably Scottish originally, uh, with many Scots in, in Canada. Uh, and he, his idea was, was not simply to invent the thing and sell the patent to somebody, which is what most inventors do. He wanted to actually produce it run run the business as you as you pointed out he knew the screw business he he wanted to have to start a company and manufacture these things he wasn't interested in just selling the idea to, to, yeah, to anybody that's, else that's a good segue because as you talked about this was perfect timing because right well 1907 what was happening it was the burgeoning auto industry right so yes. henry ford actually began using the robertson screw to assemble its model t's but as you're alluding to, that arrangement didn't last too long. So what, what actually happened? Well, Ford, of course, was was also a stubborn person. He he had this completely vertically integrated industry. I mean, see, he controlled everything. He made his own steel. He he had forests for the wood. I mean, he wanted to have to to bring everything into his corporation. So when he realized how effective these screws were. Uh, by using them, he he simply wanted to buy the patent from Robertson uh, and make it part of his of this great business that he was starting. And Robertson just wouldn't do it. He he would sell him screws. And he wasn't interested in in selling off his idea. And so Ford turned elsewhere. And there were certainly plenty of other options. And the one he 
decided on was the was I don't think it was invented by Phillips, but Phillips had bought the patent from somebody else, and it was the the star shaped screw, which basically is trying to do the same thing as the Robertson, but with a with a different shape, with an with a cruciform shape instead of a square shape. Yeah, and, and I, what, I have the benefit of having the with. research in front of me. So it was John P. Yeah. Thompson, I believe, is the actual inventor. And Henry right. F. Phillips, he was, as you said, his business partner or the businessman behind it. So that's where, of course, the name Phillips Screwhead comes from. And what happened is what happens so often in technology is not, it's not necessarily, being the best at something is important but also being kind of the largest is even more important. And the fact that Ford adopted this meant that many, many other people were going to adopt it just because it was more convenient. They were suppliers to Ford and just Ford just sort of, it's sort of like Microsoft in the, I guess in the late 20th century set the standard for a lot of things simply because they were so big. I mean, that turned out to change eventually, but for a long time, you know, initially it was IBM, then it became Microsoft, and it was that became the standard not because necessarily MS-DOS was the best computer language, it was just the one that the biggest people were using. And I think that's what happened with the Phillips screw. It was by Ford adopting it, it made kind of guarantee that that became the standard for the all industries, not just car making. What's interesting, though, is that being said, the Phillips becoming the industry standard isn't necessarily the best design, is it? No, exactly. the 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 Phillips compared to the Robertson is 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 an inferior design. Uh, I mean, it's certainly better than a than a slotted screw, and it, it does mean you can use a. Uh, power power tools, which is what was, I mean, Henry Ford's one of his concerns was that he he this was going to be used on an assembly line where people were using power tools and slotted screws were just not not going to do the job. Whereas some kind of socketed screw is what he was looking for. And I read that uh, when he first used Robertson design, they calculated that it actually saved enough time to save $2.60 per car versus a slotted design, which I can only imagine That's the bean counters behind that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, bean counting was, of course, the, the secret to Ford's success because he, he produced a car that was just, for the time, was really affordable. And that, so, yeah, that sounds perfectly, perfectly logical. So being in the States here, I do find it industry interesting that the Robertson design is still popular. It was the basically industry standard in Canada, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. In Canada, the, the it, it, it did become, I mean, you can go to any hardware store in Canada and, and buy those screws. Uh, there are a few specialty suppliers in the United States, but it's, yeah, otherwise, it's not something you find. Although I've noticed that a lot of you know the screwdrivers that come with half a dozen different heads, they often include square heads uh, as well as Phillips and and flat heads. So, uh, but 
but they're also star shapes. There, there are a number of alternatives. Yeah, like drive and all of the others. Yeah. yeah, nothing is worse for me when I'm going to take something apart and I find out it's like safety torques or security torques or oh, security with the hole in the middle with a little pin in the middle. It's, it's inferior. <laughs> right. Well, I also didn't realize Japan has its own unique industry standard, which is another like cruciform screw design. I don't know if you know of that. Yeah, I missed that. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't explore that in, in when I was writing the book. But that's interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mr. Rubinsky. Can people find more about you and your book? Uh, probably my website, which is vitoldrubinsky dot com. We'll put that in the show uh, notes for everybody to click on. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. This was. Uh, it's a great interview and illuminating. It's it's always interesting to delve deep into these topics that, you know, it's it's the humble screw, like I said. Yeah, you it's, take you it went, for granted, for sure. Exactly. As a friend of mine says, but whenever he mentions the book, it's, it's the tool, not the drink. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Well, thanks a lot All for right. calling in and talking to us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Vitold. Thank you. Bye. That's awesome. I mean, hopefully you found that interesting. I did. I always, like I said, I always find it interesting. Here's the deal. Someone could be telling me the history of the garbage truck. And if they are passionate about it and they really care, I'm willing to listen. I am going to find the history of the garbage truck now. Because I, that seems like it probably has. An it probably is story. really interesting. There's <laughs> there's all kinds of rudimentary, simple things that you know. Even the history of the refrigerator is probably like a really interesting story. That is because. Prior to that, you had to just cut ice out yeah, of the There was trains that river. would come by. The ice trains would come by, and, and uh, they'd be full of these. It'd be full of ice blocks and stuff like that. Well, and people two would come. Good future stories garbage trucks and refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I encourage you guys to head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash overcrest. That's We've right. been a lot of people have been signing up. I'm I'm really happy about that. We have uh, what was our most recent Patreon? Yeah, we had a, an illuminating story yeah. about light bulbs. Yeah, it's a really 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 great story. And there's it all sounds, kinds of other exclusive. Again, just like the screw, there is a interesting story behind a lot of these things. And, and I think we we're going to start doing this a little bit more. And and, and uh, as much it's as this not is just a, about the cars. No, it's it's of course this is a pretty good car podcast, but it's not just a car podcast. I hope you guys will won't mind us expanding into a few other things that interest us and uh, we can banter and talk about and learn the history of. I hope you guys will enjoy as we run through some of that in the future. Otherwise, we will see you guys on Friday. That's right. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,